continuing our, our series in Kings, and we looked at the first half of, of chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago, and now we, we turn to the second half. But we'll read the entire chapter to hear it again in context. So, 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up, by, up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. And as they both were standing... Excuse me, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent, therefore, fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. 
He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. So far, the word of the Lord. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 4, stanzas 1 and 2.
Well, certainly when we read a text like the one that we've just read, especially the final verses dealing with the death of the young boys, the exhortation there in in Psalm 4 is of the utmost importance for us that we restrain our anger that we might feel against God and lie down and meditate in silence on His Word. And that's also our, our goal for this morning. Our text again is the second half of Second Kings, verses 15 through 25. And we won't read those verses again, but it's certainly helpful to have them open so you can track with me as we work through them. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, with the succession of Elijah, or Elisha, what we see in, here in this chapter is, is really the beginning of a new chapter in the entire kingdom of God. If you think about it, the greatest prophet who ever lived, apart from Christ himself, was Elijah. And he is taken up from heaven into a whirlwind, and we see Elisha taking up the calling and the authority of Elijah and with the power of God behind him, and we see that when he crosses over the Jordan. And we see through Elisha, God himself beginning to build a new stage, a new chapter in his kingdom. Now before we we get into the details of the text, we want to rightly understand from the outset why this matters for us. We might look at Elijah and Elisha so many years before and think, what does this matter for us today? Well, let me hint at at least two reasons why this does matter. The first reason is the ministry of Elisha teaches us something about the character of the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anyone else in Scripture. In fact, his ministry is summed up in Matthew 4 as as saying, Jesus came from that time preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, we can learn something from this chapter about the kind of kingdom that God is desiring to build. And by looking at at Elisha, we can learn, learn things then about this kingdom and also about how God works to bring that kingdom about. If you think about it this way, Elisha inherits the most significant spiritual position of that day. He's almost like the Pope of of that day. Everyone recognized this is God's foremost prophet. And and he was so he was the leader of the people of God. And so how Elisha then goes about his ministry, how he Uh, the things that he does, teaches us about what he understood the purpose of that office to be, and that teaches us something about what he understood the kingdom of God to be. So, So by looking carefully then at the ministry of Elisha, we can learn about the kingdom of God, what it is, what God is building on this earth, and then from that standpoint, we can also begin to discern what our role might be in that kingdom of God today. Even though we're in a very different chapter, we're part of the same redemptive history. 
That's the first reason then. By looking at Elisha, we can learn things about the kingdom of God. A second reason why this chapter matters to us is because it shows us a shadow or a type of Christ himself. It's, It's good for us to recognize God's word is rich with these shadows and types. And, and it's important for us to pick up on them when they're there. These are reflections of prophets before and foreshadowings of, of prophets to come. And we, we need the eyes to see them where they exist because they're deliberately highlighted there for us. And we'll see that also in this chapter. It's just part of the way that God directs history. Uh, that, that in certain generations and at certain turning points in, in history, you can see God's hand at work through these shadows and reflections and types that, that keep on popping up in God's story. And by noticing them and reflecting on them, we can, we can gain a better ability to recognize the hand of God also in our own day and also to appreciate the work of Christ as fulfilling these these shadows and types. So we want to keep our eyes also focused on these where they exist. Well then, having said that, let's look at the text before us. Uh, Something I highlighted last week that's important to notice again is the shape of the journey that Elijah and Elisha took. Uh, The path that they took made a deliberate point. They were retracing the steps that Israel took into the land. So they go from... uh, so, So Israel, when Israel had entered the land, Israel crossed the Jordan and then went to Jericho and then to Bethel and then further north. Uh, to places like Gilgal. And now you see Elijah taking, or Elisha and Elijah taking a reverse course. Uh, they go from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and then across the Jordan. And so you see it's a departure, it's a reversal of the entrance into the land. And to Elisha and to the sons of the prophets, that's the church of that day, it would have looked like God himself was leaving the land. Elijah was God's foremost prophet, and here he is walking out of the land of Israel and making a deliberate point of of reversing the conquest. And that's why when Elijah was taken up, you can understand Elisha's anguish as he cries, My father, my father, because it seemed as if God himself was leaving them. But then, as we also saw last time in verse 14, Elisha takes up Elijah's cloak. He takes that next step of of faith, and he trusts in the promises of God and and strikes the water, and and he crosses the Jordan again. And now, when he does that, we can see God doing a new thing. God is entering the land by the same course, doing it all over again. So what we see in Elisha, and we want to recognize this, It's a new conquest of the land, led by Elisha and by the word of God. So just as God once conquered the land of Canaan under Joshua, he's now beginning a new sort of conquest under Elisha. And you can see that's exactly what happens in the ministry of Elisha. Uh, Elisha crosses the Jordan, then he goes to Jericho, then up to Bethel, and then up to Gilgal. And, and so we're, we're supposed to understand there's a new conquest happening here. 
And that's what the Israelites especially needed to understand. God is working through Elisha to, to accomplish what never happened under Joshua and under Moses. There's a new conquest because a new conquest needs to happen. The first one was not enough. Now, I mentioned that Elijah and Elisha are reflections and shadows both of former prophets and of prophets to come. And let's take a moment to to notice that. If this is the beginning of a new conquest by God to conquer the land over again, then Elisha is to Elijah what Joshua was to Moses. Do you see the parallel there in the text? The similarities are are deliberately highlighted for us. Just like Moses, Elijah ends his life, his earthly life, outside of the promised land. And just as Deuteronomy tells us that no one could find the place of Moses' burial, so the 50 men in our text are unable to find Elijah, though they look for him. God himself took him, just as God himself had buried Moses. And like Joshua, Elijah then receives the Spirit of God that had been with his master. There's a scene in in the first chapters of Joshua where Joshua receives the Spirit that was upon Moses. And, And the proof of God's presence for Joshua came when he crossed the Jordan. Uh, That's in Joshua chapter 3. And the Lord tells Joshua there, He says, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then at the word of of Joshua, the Lord parted the Jordan, and Joshua and the people crossed over. Well, now we see the same thing happening with Elisha. And and the sons of the prophets, remember, they're across from the Jordan watching the whole thing unfold. Uh, They saw it and they immediately recognized what it meant, that the spirit of Elijah, or the spirit of the Lord that had been on Elijah, was now on Elisha. And so we see Elijah and Elisha standing as a sort of new Moses and Joshua. And the authors deliberately highlight this for us to be able to see it. Uh, This parallel shows, at the very least, it shows that the same God who was at work in Moses and and Joshua is now at work in Elijah and Elisha. And he's preparing to do a similar thing that he did through Moses and Joshua. The circumstances are different, yes. The manner of conquest is also different, but it is a conquest nonetheless. And we want to see the hand of God behind it right from the beginning. So keep those those shadows and reflections in mind. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Well, we saw last week how Elisha had asked for a double portion of the Spirit, and that, that double portion refers to the son's portion, the firstborn son's portion. So not twice the Spirit, but the full inheritance of the Spirit. Well, it still remains to be seen whether or not He has that spirit. And you see that when he crosses the Jordan. He cries out, where is the God of Elijah? And the moment he did so, the waters parted as they had done for Elijah. And the significance is is abundantly clear. God is with Elisha just as he was with Elijah. And that's going to be important. I'll get back to that point in a moment. First, we, there's a, a brief interlude where we see that the prophets, the sons of the prophets, 
hadn't quite accepted that Elijah was gone. And Israel without Elijah was, was certainly a thing to get used to. And we saw last week the, the fear and the anxiety that they, they felt at the loss of Elijah. And so it's not really a surprise that they say, you know, let's go at least look for him. Why can't we at least check to see whether maybe God put him back on the ground again? And so they go, and for three days they find nothing. And, of course, uh, the answer that Elisha gives to them is essentially uh, an adult's way of saying, I told you so. Um, And that's what he tells them. And from that moment on, it seems that the prophetic community, the church, accepts the fact that Elisha is now in the place of Elijah. And that's incredibly important because Elisha's ministry was going to be controversial. There's going to be times in Elisha's ministry where people are questioning whether it's really the same God at work in Elisha as it was with Elijah. It's an especially controversial ministry. He came with a sword, dividing Israel, bringing blessing to the church, and bringing judgment to unbelievers and the rest of the nation. And so it's recorded very clearly from the outset, whatever you want to think about Elisha, know this, the same God who was working mightily in Elijah is now at work in Elisha as well. If you're going to accept Elijah as someone sent from God, then you must also accept Elisha, who is because the same God is, is clearly at work in him. So that's the, the introduction that needs to be impressed upon us at the beginning of Elisha's ministry. I want to spend the rest of this morning then just looking at the first two things that Elisha did in this ministry. And this is going to show us why it's so important that we know that God was with him just as he was with Elijah. These two events, the two events that you find first in verses 19 to 22, the water of Jericho, and then in 23 to 25, the boys of Bethel, these two events show us what kind of ministry Elisha's ministry will be. And by implication, what kind of conquest the conquest under him will be. The first thing that Elisha does is bring healing to the city of Jericho. Joshua, when he came, he destroyed the city of Jericho. It's a famous story, of course. The walls of Jericho fell down. And when he did so, he also pronounced a curse upon the city of Jericho. And that was a curse that whoever rebuilt the, the walls and the gates would do so at the cost of his firstborn and, and his, also his youngest son. And that curse was actually fulfilled in the days of, of Ahab. The city was rebuilt and the man who built it uh, lost his oldest and his youngest son in, in so doing. But now Elisha comes to Jericho and he brings healing to the city of Jericho. Now, we don't know that all the men of the city here were faithful worshipers of God. It doesn't doesn't tell us that. But it is worth noticing the difference between the reception that Elisha got in Jericho and the respect that he gets in, or the lack of respect that he gets in Bethel. In Jericho, it says the men of the city called him. It doesn't even say the church. The men of the city called him, and they called him, My Lord. And they honor him as a prophet by bringing this request to him. And and so what we see is a city that had been under God's judgment. The water was cursed as a result. 
And yet the people were able to receive the prophet of the Lord. And so the men of the city came to Elisha and they told him that the water was bad, causing the land to be unfruitful. The ESV translates that word as unfruitful. I don't think it's the best translation. It's a word that everywhere else means barren or, or bereft of children. And we can see that that's really what was going on because after he heals it, it says there will be no more death or miscarriage. And so the water was somehow causing miscarriage, causing the women to be barren. There's, there's scholars that actually suggest that uh, there may have been some radioactivity even in the water because there were often earthquakes in the area, and there can that, that can happen, that, that the water can be radioactive as a result. Well, whether that's true or not, what we can see is that there's, there's death and miscarriage coming from this water. And so Elisha responds to their request... Uh, and, and it's a very interesting response. It's intriguing. You wonder what's going on. He, he asks for a new bowl, and he puts salt in it, and then he throws that salt into the spring in, in Jericho. Now, what we, one thing we know is that this isn't magic, right? This is a prophet of God. So this is not magic. But we should be left wondering, what is the meaning of this, this new bowl and, and the salt, there's, and there's plenty of debate about it in the commentaries. You, there's no end to, to that debate. I'll summarize what seem to be the, the clearest uh, points. One is that salt is always associated with the covenant of God. Salt was, was, of course, used for preservation. And so God often used salt as a symbol for the, the everlasting nature of, of his covenants. Uh, Leviticus 2, verse 13, the Lord commanded... Through Moses, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with the Lord your God be missing from your grain offerings. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Uh, You see the same thing in the Lord's words to, to Aaron in Numbers 18. It says, All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you, to you and your sons, and your daughters with you. It's a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and your offspring with you. So there's, there's an association between salt, which preserves, and the covenant of God. Uh, there's also a, a case in Second Chronicles 13 where Abijah, the king of Judah, makes a, uh, he, he speaks of how God made a covenant of salt with the people of Israel. So that's the, the association. When you hear salt, You want to think about the covenant. The new bull is is a little bit more more difficult. Some have taken it as maybe a symbol of purity. It's a new bull instead of an old bull that was dirtied with, with its various uses. I would say rather that Elisha is making the point that the same everlasting covenant, symbolized by the salt, will be found in a new container, a new form. Same covenant, but coming in a new form. Because that's exactly what happens under the ministry of Elisha. No longer is it a conquest of the land the way that it was under Jericho. Now it's a conquest by God's word that, might, that, that will ultimately even result in the people going into exile. Same covenant, very different outward form. 
Well, so Elisha took this new bowl and, and with the salt of the covenant and he threw it into the spring and it says God healed the water. So the old city of Jericho that had been under God's curse now became a place of healing and blessing. Through Elijah or through Elisha, God is beginning a new thing in, in Israel. So that's the first point we want to recognize in the ministry of Elisha. He comes bringing healing to those who fear him and honor him. On the other hand, Bethel, which had, been a, which had once been a place of God's blessing, now becomes a place of his judgment. And we see that in, in the next thing that Elisha does. Let's just read those verses together in uh, verses 23 to, to 24. It says, he went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. This is one of the most troubling passages of the Old Testament Because many people read this as a malicious prophet sending a curse on a bunch of innocent kindergartners who really didn't know any better. And we read that and we think, what kind of God would honor that kind of curse? Well, here's here's a few things that we need to understand. First, the translation small boys is accurate. Okay, there are other translations that want to say young people or youths. but the text is, is very clear that these are small boys. There's not a single place where this, this word refers to anything but small boys. Now, they're old enough to be in a group by themselves, apparently without any adult supervision. So we're not going to say kindergartners necessarily. And they're old enough to give this kind of insult with that kind of boldness. Uh, but the text does say small boys. So we should assume they're somewhere between, let's say, 8 and, and 12 years old. They're small boys unsupervised, not little children, but still old enough to know what they were doing. That's the first thing we want to recognize. That translation is is accurate. Secondly, here's probably the main point. These boys are a picture of the spiritual degradation in Bethel. Unlike Jericho, God's prophets were despised and hated in Bethel. These boys, after all, They're only repeating what they've heard around the dinner table from their parents about the prophets of God. Their parents have taught them to despise the prophets of God and the word of God. And so as little children, that's exactly what they're doing. They're just imitating what they've learned from their parents. Let me make one more point. Uh, Thirdly, this is not evidence of a grumpy and vengeful prophet. Okay, we want to recognize that. Elisha is not the one to blame here. We can't just, just say that this is all Elisha's fault. If Elisha was wrong to curse them, then God would not have honored that curse. Okay, Elisha didn't kill them. The bears did. So this is evidence of a God who honors his covenant and who is now coming through Elisha in judgment. Elisha is only administering the covenant curses of God. Just as he came to bring covenant blessings to Jericho, here he comes to bring covenant curses on Bethel. It's a shocking scene, and it's one that 
that understandably makes any one of us uncomfortable with our God. But this is precisely why we need to study books like Kings. It may not be your, your favorite book, and it doesn't have to be your favorite book. But God gives this book because we need it. And there are truths here that we need to reflect upon, that we need to reckon with. We need to deal honestly with the realities that, that we face here. So let me make a couple of, of observations about what God is teaching through this event. First thing we need to recognize is there is no such thing as an age of innocence. There's no such thing. We're born sinners with hearts that are turned against our God. This is why so many translations want to, want to translate this as, as youths, because many of them hold to a Baptistic belief in an age of innocence. Many Christians believe that for, for certain years of your childhood, you're, you're covered uh, morally under this age of, of innocence. Well, Scripture never speaks about such an age, and texts like this warn us that that, that kind of idea is an invention of our minds. What this text shows us, as, as uncomfortable as it is, is that there is no such age. We are conceived and born in sin. Rebellion against God is woven into our very natures. Leave a child alone without instruction and without discipline, and he or she will turn into an adult who hates the Lord and who rebels against Him. Proverbs says that so many times over and over. And so we need to take that to heart. God does no wrong when He takes life away, even at an age like this. No one, no one stands innocent before God. Well, for believers, there's, there's certainly comfort when God takes our children away. We know that God's covenant grace extends also to the children of those who fear Him. But for unbelievers... We have no idea. We do not know what God will do. We know that they are guilty enough for God to be right, just, perfect, when He takes their life away here on earth. And we do not know what God does afterwards. Nor, and I emphasize this strongly, nor do we have to know. Sometimes we feel like we have to know. We have to come up with an explanation for what God does to the children of unbelievers after this life. We don't have to know that. We don't have to sit in God's judgment seat and declare what God will do. Is God not righteous and good enough to make that decision for Himself? His hands never do injustice. That's why it was good that it wasn't planned, actually, but uh, it's good that we read from or sang from Psalm 119. I thought about this as we sang uh, in stanza 26, Lord, you are good, and what you do is good. How we need to be reminded of that. All that God does is good. And our prayer should be, teach me, and by your truth, let me be guided. So what God does is good. We are a fallen and sinful human race, and God does not owe us anything. When he takes the life even of a child away, he does so in full righteousness. Secondly, this text also shows us that children share in the consequences for the sins of their father. 
Now, they don't share in the guilt of the sins of their fathers. We don't, that's not the point here. And, and also in the law, when it says uh, that he, he punishes the children for the sins of their fathers, the reason for that is because children inherit the sins of their fathers. They, they learn the sins of their fathers. And really, this, this is true everywhere in life. When parents make foolish, wrong decisions, children suffer the consequences for those decisions. And that's especially true with, when it comes to spiritual upbringing. Now, God here is not punishing these children only for the guilt of their fathers. He says elsewhere that, the, that everyone will suffer for their own sins. The children will not suffer for the sins of the fathers. But the reason that God's judgment falls on them is because they have learned and adopted the sins of their fathers. They have inherited the consequence for the failure of their fathers to teach them and to discipline them in the ways of the Lord. Stories like this are are tragic. They are sad. God doesn't record them because He feels no compassion for little children. He records them because there are real and horrible consequences to failing to bring your children up in the ways of the Lord, for teaching them the fear of the Lord while there is still time. God stands, and we need to see this again, God stands above this event perfectly righteous and entirely without sin. The children stand condemned for their own sins, sin in, in which they have been born and from which their parents have not taught them and disciplined them from. And, and the parents then stand doubly condemned. The parents of Bethel are the ones upon whom the great shame is, is, is laid because they are the ones who have done this to their children. God's covenant judgments, as we see in the law, extend through multiple generations because unbelief and rebellion not only have consequences for yourself, but they do, it does have consequences also for your children. In fact, I think we're, we're supposed to think specifically of the covenant curses which God himself had declared. You think of Leviticus 26, where one of the, cur- the covenant curses for disobedience would be wild beasts who would be let loose and would kill their children. God told the people through Moses, I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads will be deserted. In fact, it's worth noting that, that the word used in that, court, in that curse, that they, these beasts will bereave you of your children, is the same word that was earlier used of Jericho, which had previously been bereft of children, but now is no longer. So just as God reversed that curse because of their faith, God now applied that curse to Bethel because of their lack of faith and their unbelief. Well, here's what made... Elisha is such a hated prophet in Israel. And you're going to see this for the rest of Elisha's life. These two signs are very much representative of Elisha's entire prophetic ministry. He came bringing healing to those who would repent and severe, severe judgment on those who didn't. He did that through himself, his own works, such as he did here in this chapter. Also through Jehu, 
who he anointed as king of Israel, also through Hazel, who he anointed king of Syria. It would be a time of judgment for those who did not believe. This is why it's so important that we consider for ourselves today the work of of Elisha and his ministry. Even though it happened 3,000 years ago, it tells us something eternally true about our God. Let me come back to those shadows and reflections and types that I spoke of earlier. The Jews for centuries believed that, that Elijah or, or a type of Elijah would come, would return and prepare the way for the Messiah. And the Lord Jesus taught, taught very clearly that that type was John the Baptist. He was the Elijah who was to come, the lone voice crying out in the wilderness, calling the people to repentance. That's the new Elijah. Well, that can only mean that the one coming in the mold of Elisha is the Lord Jesus himself. If John the Baptist is Elijah, the Lord Jesus is the new Elisha. In fact, the names... If you, if you go through all the, the shadows here, so Joshua to Elisha to Jesus, they're, they're in fact the very same name. Joshua means Yahweh saves, Elisha means my God saves, and Jesus is simply the, the Greek form of, of the name Joshua. And so we want to recognize that the, the ministry of Elisha is a picture, a hard picture, but a real picture of the ministry of of the Lord Jesus himself. And that should be a very, very sober reminder for us. On the one hand, Elisha came bringing healing. That's what we want to, we love to talk about that. We want to rejoice in that. Elisha came to bring healing. He healed the water of Jericho. We'll see in the, in the chapters to come, he provides sustenance for a widow of uh, a widow that was part of the church. He he raises the son of a Shunammite woman. He multiplies loaves of bread, just as the Lord Jesus did. He purifies a poisonous stew that that, uh, the prophets had been eating. He healed a Syrian leper. He protected Israel from invasion on a couple of instances. He rescued Israel from besieging armies, and so on and so on. There is a, a huge side of Elisha's ministry, that is a ministry of, of healing. In fact, that's largely the first half of his ministry, blessing and healing specifically and only for the church, for the sons of the prophets, as well as on occasion for foreigners who would come also to believe. You think of Naaman the Syrian. But on the other hand, Elisha's ministry was also a ministry of judgment, particularly towards the end after he anointed Hazael and Jehu and and he slaughtered the descendants of Ahab and ultimately killed the prophets of Baal and, and ultimately led even all of Israel into exile. We, we don't want to miss how that also foreshadows the coming of the Lord Jesus. You think of the Lord Jesus in Revelation and he comes in a fearsome sight with a, a sword coming out of his mouth. That also is the ministry of the Lord Jesus, be it perhaps a ministry that we, we tend to overlook or, or tend not to talk about. We don't want to see the Lord Jesus in a one-sided manner. I'll give you an example of how this happens. I was in uh, Waterloo this, this past week and I saw a church 
and uh, the church had put up a rainbow flag. Maybe some of you saw this in the papers. They put up a rainbow flag, and underneath that rainbow flag, someone had graffitied the words, Thou shalt be holy. I'm not sure if graffitiing is the right way to express that. But then underneath that, the church had put up a second sign saying, Yeah, but God is love. This is the one-sided way of seeing the ministry of the Lord Jesus, where he's either a prophet of healing or a prophet of judgment, but we can't see him as how he is, one who really brings very much of both. Well, don't miss how much the Lord Jesus' ministry also followed that uh, aspect of the ministry of Elisha's. In, In Christ, a new conquest also begins, the greatest conquest of the kingdom of God that continues even to his day. And in Christ's ministry, he also brought healing. He provided food. He raised the dead. He cared for widows. He casted out demons. He healed lepers and and he healed the blind. And his ministry also provoked Israel to jealousy by healing Gentiles the way that, that Elisha also did. But his ministry, like Elisha's, also ends with words of severe judgment. He came to bring the covenant curses also upon Jerusalem. So it's a a twisted and one-sided version of the ministry of Jesus that ignores his teachings in, in nearly the second half of almost all of the Gospels. Words of very, very heavy judgment. Like Elisha, the Lord Jesus made use of foreign armies, sending the armies of Rome ultimately against Jerusalem to judge and to destroy those who were unfaithful and unbelieving. Well, here's the point. Let me finish. Here's the sober lesson that we ought to learn from Elisha's ministry. Christ brings a new conquest, not only of the land of Israel, but of the whole earth. And the kingdom of God under Christ comes with immeasurable blessing and healing for those who repent and believe. There is healing, real, life-transforming healing, healing for scarred consciences, healing for those who have been hurt, healing for those who are broken, and for those who, who, who know themselves to be under God's curse. Christ brings immeasurable healing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In Jesus Christ there is healing for the worst of sinners. And and we see this in Christ's life as he preached the gospel to the most unworthy, to tax collectors, to prostitutes, to sinners, to outcasts, to Gentiles. And that, of course, also includes to us as, as Gentiles. The same love that Elisha had for the prophets, Christ has for the church. Imperfect, though the church certainly is. At the same time, The kingdom of God that Christ is building, like that of Elisha, is one that comes with terrible judgment for those who reject him and oppose him and despise him, and especially for those who oppose him within the covenant. It's the side of of Jesus' ministry that too often gets ignored. The Lord's Lord's warnings to Jerusalem were, were very heavy, very severe, 
Again, it reminds you of what happened to the boys of Bethel. He says, Alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing in those days. Just like Elisha, the Lord would would summon foreign armies against the city of Jerusalem. And, And they came, 40 years after he ascended, they came bringing that judgment against Jerusalem. We want to recognize here the justice of God. And this is why we need to spend time in books like Kings. So we don't get a, a one-sided, lopsided idea of who our God is and what He is like. He brings immeasurable healing and blessing. But He also comes with terrible judgment. And there's no neutral response to such a ministry. There is the call to repent and believe and to humble ourselves under Him. And that's what He calls us to do. And let that be to us then a joyful, a comforting, but also a sober reminder of the kingdom that God is building. Building through the work of our Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Amen. Let's respond by singing together from Psalm 2, stanzas 1 through 4.